Today on the Surgical Fiction Podcast, USA Today bestselling author David Poyer writes gripping undersea thrillers in the tradition of Clive Cussler and John D. MacDonald. Salvage diver and ex-con Tiller Galloway vowed he'd never work for the Baptist again. Until the menacing kingpin makes him an offer he can't refuse, sending him deep into the beautiful blue Caribbean to raise 50 tons of sunken cargo. A dive to the razor's edge of death. Caught in the crossfire of a crazed underboss, hostile islanders, and a corrupt Bahamian government, Tiller and his Hatteras Island sidekick, Shad Aidlet, take on a nightmare of double crosses as a scenario more sinister than he ever imagined begins to unfold. From the author of Down to a Sunless Sea comes this shattering sequel to Hatteras Blue, a tale as explosive as those of Hammond Ennis and Peter Benchley, and packed with some of the most breathless and vivid undersea scenes ever written. An excerpt from Bahamas Blue by David Poyer. Audiobook narrated by Edison McDaniels. Right now on the Surgical Fiction Podcast. This all he give you? Grunted Aidlet, turning the card this way and that under the dome line. Harold C. Lax, it read, Attorney at Law. A Norfolk number was penciled on the back. That's all. Told you to call him? Galloway nodded. His partner sucked a tooth and looked out into the pre-dawn darkness. Now you don't want to. Take my word for it, Shad. We're better off throwing this line back. These people will make it sound good. They'll dangle money in front of us. But at the end, they'll be just what your brother got. Or what I got the last time I danced with him. Nothing, if we're lucky. A bullet, if we aren't. This Nunez, who's he? A Colombian, a major trafficker. They call him the Baptist. Yeah, why? Because anybody who gets involved with him, sooner or later, they end up underwater. Adlet grunted. The truck leaned on its springs as he swung down. If you say so, make him money, that sounds good. But like you said, about Maisie, well, we'll play it the way you call it. Thanks for telling me, though. We're partners, Shad. I owe you the level. Adlet nodded. He headed for the shop as Tiller got out, then suddenly went still. What is it? Shad waved him into silence. He pointed at the knob, rotated his hand left and then right. Shit, Galloway thought. He flattened himself paint close against the wall opposite the black man. They stared at each other in the starlight. Aidlet, in a whisper. Did you lock it? Hell yeah, I locked it. Shad ran back to the truck on the balls of his feet. He ran lightly for a big man, and Tiller remembered watching him on the field for Hatteras High. When he came back, he hefted an axe handle. Galloway got a two-foot length of steel cable wrapped with electrical tape. When they opened the door, he grabbed the bell. Instead of a jangle, it made a muffled clank. The interior was dark except for the bulb in the fish tank. Chrome and stainless sparkled faintly around it. There was nothing alive in the front room except the guppies and neons. The still air breathed emptiness, 
They went quickly through to the back, clubs at the ready. There was no one else in the store. Tiller came back flicking on lights, looking behind the doors. Nothing. Sure you locked it. Damn it, I said I did. Hello? It was Bernie Hirsch, looking unnaturally cheerful for 5 a.m. in a blue jogging suit and red and white boat shoes. She held up a thermos. I hope it's warmer out at sea, she said, kissing Galloway on the lips and Adelid on the cheek. Hi, Shad. How's Latricia? Want some coffee? What's the matter? You boys look tense. It's nothing. Tiller set the makeshift club on the counter. Well, let's get to work. Adelid's arms bulged as he plunged tank after tank into the water bath. Air hissed through lines from the high-pressure banks. The water smelled dank and moldy. Galloway sneezed as he kicked open the back door, arms filled with wetsuit tops. Miss Anna glowed in the center of the canal like a ghost ship on the black breast of the sticks. The stars glittered like shattered zircons in the burning arc of Hatteras sky. She bowed to him gracefully as he stepped aboard. Suddenly, a swell of pride lifted his heart. Every dollar he'd earned in drugs had vanished like smoke, leaving it taste like a sales sample of death. He had nothing now. He'd worked like a dog getting the boat in shape, borrowed himself deeper than anyone he'd ever known. Yet on the edge of bankruptcy, he felt free. It was like a rule of nature, that only what you worked for had value, that what you gained by evil means caused only evil in its turn. Getting to be quite a philosopher, he thought. But it can't bring your cousin back, or your father, or Measy, or old Cliff, all those he'd hurt through his greed and foolishness. Grinding his teeth, he threw his burden violently into an open locker. They were supposed to meet the club at the Park Service dock at Oregon Inlet. The sky was paling over the low blackness of Buxton as they purred out of the landing, prowling from marker to marker. When Tiller's beam caught the last one, he waved the flashlight over his head. Aylid's shadow lifted an arm in reply. A moment later, the engines rose to a drone. The deck slanted beneath their feet. The chuckle of spray built to a roar as Miss Anna lurched onto a plane. Tiller leaned against the cabin windshield, rubbing his chin. He'd forgotten to shave. Well, they had time. It was a little over an hour, hour and a half to the inlet. That would make it, he examined the luminescent numerals of his dive watch, 7.30. He glanced up again at the bridge. No problem leaving it to Shad. The Aidlitz had been watermen on Hatteras for generations. Tiller had cut bait and scrubbed decks with him and his brothers Meshach and Abednego on the princess when he was a boy. They'd grown up separate, yet strangely close, as black and white had back then. And now they were partners. He looked out once more. The lights of the new sound front developments glittered to starboard. To the left, ahead, was only the empty void of the open sound. Stars floated on it, burning beneath the calm black water. Suddenly, from behind him, a cold white arrow shot out into the night. He'd grown up with it, but for some reason it took him by surprise this time. The 24-mile beam of Hatteras light. It swept soundlessly overhead like the blade of an immense sword. He turned from it and went below. He was scraping off shaving cream when the door of the little head clicked open. Busy he grunted. 
Warm hands came around his chest and teased his nipples. How busy? Not that busy. I missed you last night. I asked you to stay. You know I can't do that too often. He felt her breath. The prickle of her hair moved down his back. Uh-huh. Mr. Mutton wouldn't approve. Mr. Moulton. And he's right. Parole officers shouldn't get... She squeezed him. Too close to their clients? We'll be done pretty soon. Done now. He tore a paper towel off the roll. Good. Her fingers hesitated. Till, I know I asked already, but is something wrong? What could be wrong? Well, usually when I do this, something different happens. Nothing's wrong, he said. Shrugging off blue cotton, she stepped into his arms, pulling the door closed behind her. He buried his face in her hair. Sometimes he wondered whether she was too young for him, but she'd taken care of him after his back operation, defended him at his cousin's inquest, admitted at last that she loved him. This was where he wanted to be. He had all he wanted, right in his arms. He hoped what he just told her was true. Two vans were waiting when they slipped in out of the rosy detonation of a Pamlico dawn. Tiller stood at the stern, hands in his pockets, as Hirsch alternately gunned and backed, twisting the cruiser in between the finger piers. The other slips were deserted. Summer might be limbing season for tourists, but the fishermen disappeared as mysteriously as cicadas. Mr. Uh, Kirsten, he called. One of the men raised a hand. Put him over, Hirsch called. Tiller swung and the watchers scattered, hands lifted for the settling coil. He swung up the gunnel gate, then, favoring his back, slid the gangplank across. A moment later, he was shaking hands with the instructor. Mr. Galloway, looks like a good day for diving. Sure does. Beautiful boat. You don't see many like this nowadays. They called this style Populux, didn't they? Thanks. I think so. Something like that. Got everybody? Have them take their gear inside. Don't use these stern lockers. The tanks and suits are in there. Forty-two feet of cabin cruiser shrank drastically when packed with twelve divers and their equipment. They leaned over the stern rail, perched on the bow, chattering as Hirsch got underway again. She pointed Miss Anna due east. Herring gulls fell like live manna out of the growing light, their cries imploring and at the same time ominous. A concrete rainbow grew, passed overhead, and subsided astern. The Bonner Bridge crossed from Bodie to Hatteras, linking the populous north banks to the more remote south. The open sea spread like a blue arena ahead. When they passed the last nervously tossing buoy, Tiller unrolled the chart. He gave Hirsch a course of 108, and the engines went to full speed again. Below them, Kirsten came out of the cabin. John, Tiller called down, can you get your people together for a minute? I need to give a little pre-dive talk. While they were assembling, he swept his gaze around the horizon. He couldn't say why. From this height, he could survey 60 square miles of sea. The bridge was a dark bump astern. The only other craft in sight were two sailboats to the south, headed away. The bow pointed down a glittering road paved with gold by the rising sun. A good omen for his first charter? He hoped so. Wind buffeted his face. Beneath him, the deck rolled as green swells passed beneath. 
Already, some of the divers looked queasy. Okay, please listen up. Welcome to the Outer Banks, Blitz Brothers Diving and Miss Anna. I'm Tiller Galloway, your dive master. This large gentleman is Shad Aidlet, my number two. At the wheel is Ms. Bernice Hirsch, who will be in charge up here while we're below. As you know, the waters off Hatteras offer the finest wreck diving on the East Coast. We call this the Graveyard of the Atlantic, and you're about to see why. Today we'll do three sites. I'll brief you on each before we go down so the details are clear in your mind. This first dive is on a World War II wreck called the Marcon. She was sunk in 1942 during the German offensive against American merchant traffic. She's in 60 feet of water with the top of the wreck at 30. So we're starting off easy. The bow's pointing north just as she was torpedoed. She went down in one piece, and I think you'll find it a memorable dive. A lot of sea life, groupers, yellowtail, lots of growth on and in the wreck itself. Look for kingfish on the sand. We'll be in the Gulf Stream, so you may see barracuda and bonito. The faces watched him. He searched his mind for anything else he ought to tell them. I know you're all qualified, but let's review some precautions. Stay inside of your buddy. Don't go into the wreck unless you have a reserve air supply either a spare regulator or a pony bottle. My own rule is never to get into a situation where I can't make a quick and graceful exit. There's a big green moray lives down on one of the boilers. We'll call him Old Ned. He's not aggressive, but don't tease him. If you come up early, help yourselves to fruit juice and sodas in the galley. We'll break out the beer after the last dive. I guess that's about it. Any questions? A shout faint against wind and engines. Any current down there? Plan on about a knot, setting north. Don't wander too far. It'll be hard swimming back against it. Tell her, we're almost there. Thanks, Bernie. Okay, y'all can start suiting up now if you want. He checked their position and turned on the depth recorder he'd borrowed from Bill Foster. Right on time, the trace jagged upward from a sloping bottom. Hirsch slowed down and turned south without being told. Aidlet was on the bow, running the hook out with a hand winch. Its clatter came back to them. Tiller dragged sweat off his forehead. There was less wind now they were stopped. It would be another hot day. A few minutes later, Shad shot his fist upward. Bernice centered both throttles at idle and shaded her eyes. Anchor's holding, she called. Tiller nodded, tossing his safety float over the stern. The deck was packed with people zipping up wetsuits, tightening backpacks and buoyancy compensators, attaching regulators to air tanks. His eyes snagged on firm bottoms and soft cleavages disappearing beneath lica and rubber. Almost half the club were women, well-heeled, too. Their designer gear bags held expensive diving computers, camera equipment, video cams, and plastic housings. His own gear was basic and rather old, but he liked it that way. There was less to break, and he didn't have to think too much. There were times when that was an advantage underwater. He pulled it on in the forward cabin, clambered out on deck. He strapped on his fins, sitting on the gunwale. Sweat was already prickling his neck. Inside a quarter inch of black neoprene, the sun heated you up fast. Aylet's tank clanged against a combing. He waddled out like an uncomfortable bear. Tiller grinned up at him. His partner hadn't been diving long. He had strength and courage, but skill in the water came only with experience. Shad gave him back a sour glance. 
Ready to put him in? He grunted. Let's go. Sealing his mask and leaning forward, Tiller Galloway rolled face first through the sparkling mirror of the sea. His sudden descent startled several fish loitering under the hull. They flashed away so quickly he couldn't see what they were. Cool water flooded his suit. His weights were balanced for neutral buoyancy, and as the momentum of his fall dissipated, he came to a dead stop six feet down. He hung motionless, staring down in the wonder that always took him when he entered the separate world of the sea. He was surrounded by the moving, melted turquoise of the stream. The sunlight slid down through it in golden beams, flickering as the swell refracted them. They spread as they fell, melting into shifting gossamers of yellow, green, and emerald as his eye followed them down. Down to the wreck. Thirty feet above the shattered junk of its superstructure, it couldn't make out much. In the dimness below his dangling fins, he could tell only that he was looking at something huge. Ahead, the anchor line led down into a blue-green haze. Beside him, Miss Anna's copper-painted bottom surged slowly, pulling down strings of silvery bubbles. He blew out to clear the regulator and sucked in air. It tasted dry and a little nasty at the back of his tongue. Time to change the filter on the compressor. He was getting plenty to breathe, though, and his gauge read a standard 2800 PSI. He valved a shot of it into his vest and fend forward to the line. He held it for a moment, alert for vibration. That would mean the anchor was dragging. It felt like it was bolted to hell. He took a last look around, making sure there was nothing hostile in sight and that the current wasn't too strong. Okay, fine. He surfaced and spat out the mouthpiece. The faces turned toward him and he called, Water's great. Come on in. She's right under our keel. He went down to twenty feet and waited, gripping the line with one gloved hand as the others entered the water. Kirsten had trained them well. They came in two by two, paused just under the surface to check each other's gear and adjust buoyancy, then continued down, clearing their ears as they descended. Streaming on the line like a flag, he felt the slow, huge current move past him like a warm wind. Blowing north from the Caribbean, it warmed the whole eastern seaboard up to Newfoundland. While deep Atlantic currents flowed south, dark and cold, replacing it in the slow tow of nature. Not a bad arrangement, he thought. Better than I could have planned. When he counted twelve divers, he waited another few seconds, his eyes on the surface. Right on schedule, Shad appeared in an inverted Christmas tree of bubbles. Watered-down sunlight glinted off his mask as he searched around. Down, Galloway signaled him. His partner nodded, repeated the gesture, and surface-dived. He was light and had to kick to get under. Tiller grinned again. He pointed Shad toward the bow, where several pairs had congregated to read the vessel's name and gaze up at the anchor. He dived the Marcone, and the other wrecks they'd be touring today many times. He had no desire to sightsee. He just had to be there, ready to step in if anyone got into trouble. At the additional pressure of 30 feet, the air in his suit in B.C. compressed. As he neared the white sand bottom, his descent accelerated. Finally, he stopped swimming and let his weight pull him the last few feet. He worked his jaw and his ears clicked. He adjusted his mask, tightened the straps on his backpack, and looked around. He'd come down on the port side, and it towered above him like a rusty wall. A small school of jacks swam away along it, sticking close to the bottom. 
The plates were buckled where they'd slammed into the sand. The shattered area aft marked where the torpedo had hit. But all in all, the wreck was in good shape. Until you lifted your gaze, the Coast Guard had blown off her superstructure and the effect was like a headless corpse. Two masks showed above him, looking down over the rail. Silver plumes of bubbles wobbled over them. He grinned around his mouthpiece. Lifting his hand, he waved a slow bon voyage. Other plumes streamed upward beyond them. Most of the club seemed to be up forward. But the most interesting part of the wreck was aft. The hatches gaped there, square black wells no self-respecting diver could resist. Behind them, connecting via a corridor, were the engine and boiler rooms. He decided to see what was going on back there. Valving air into the B.C., he rose, then swam aft over the twisted junk that had been her bridge. As he sank into the hold, darkness rose around him. His pupils opened as he dropped, and the blackness dissolved into shadows and looming angular forms. One of the shadows uncoiled, moving away from him in sinuous twists. A shoal of five-inch schoolmasters, their silver-copper bodies packed so close they could have been sliced with a knife and fitted into cans. Another shape became a diver. She was investigating a corroded truck frame. As he watched, she aimed a camera. The strobe glowed for an instant and then died, as if the pressure of the sea crushed light itself. A headache nagged between his eyes. He reached up to ease his mask. That helped, and he waggled his head from side to side as he reached the after bulkhead. A tilted narrow passageway continued down and aft. Souvenir hunters had taken off the doors. He swam down it, fending steel off with gloved fingertips as the gloom grew deeper around him. The engine room was the size of an indoor tennis court, but underwater it seemed even larger. Narrow, bright shafts slid through holes in the overhead and searched about in the sable blackness. Sparkling moats drifted through them, particles of rust settling as what had once been a ship, like everything else gnawed by the all-devouring sea, returned slowly but inexorably to discreation. As his eyes adjusted, he made out long disused machinery, gears, pipes, the root-like clutch of cables, the rusted blossoms of valve handles. His fingers found his flash and light licked over the dead metal. The drab gloom burst abruptly into russet browns, chrome yellows, fungal algae red as arterial blood. Ted Turner, he thought, eat your colorizing heart out. He played it around, alert for the moray. No Ned, but a lazy cyclone of kicked-up murk showed him where someone had gone ahead of him, into the side tank. That was narrow and rather dangerous if he got hung up. Perhaps he should go in after the diver. He checked his depth, the time, and his air pressure, in the green. He clicked the light off, then winced, sucking rubber-tasting air with a hiss. The headache was back. Sometimes when you breathe shallow, you got one from the carbon dioxide buildup. He hadn't been consciously conserving air, but just on the off chance he drew in a deep lungful and blew out, did it again and again. The headache got worse. He let himself rise, blinking as he peered over the hooded bulk of the engines. He couldn't see whoever was in there, but now and then he could make out lights probing about through the rivet holes. But the pause had made him reconsider following. They didn't need a nanny. They were here for an adventure, after all and everyone had signed the release form. He looked back into the passageway. The strobe flickered again at the far end. A feeble gray-blue glow bled down from the surface. 
His unease, the same apprehension that had made him search the horizon before they went down, grew stronger. He decided whatever was going on, he'd feel better in the open. He exhaled and waved himself downward with his hands. He turned cautiously, keeping his tank clear of the overhead. Then, fixing his eyes on the light, began swimming toward it. It seemed to take forever. His legs felt like lead. The water dragged at his fins like cold honey as he emerged from the hold. Even 40 feet down, through the silt a dozen divers were stirring up, the sunlight was so bright his eyelids crimped involuntarily. He didn't want to open them again. He wanted to sleep. He also felt sick to his stomach. He jerked his eyes open by main force. Something was wrong with him. Perhaps he ought to surface. There were others to think of, though. He was responsible for them. He couldn't just leave. He coasted to a stop above the wreck. Hovering there, wishing he could rub his burning eyeballs, he looked around impatiently for Shad. Then his gaze froze. One of the chartered divers was drifting downward, kicking and thrashing. He seemed to be trying to rise, but unable to tell where the surface was. But even as Tiller stared, groping fingers found what they wanted. A buckle detached with a clack. The weight belt tumbled away, and the diver began to rise, accompanying his ascent with feeble digging motions of his arms. Tiller turned his head from side to side, blinking through increasing drowsiness. Other forms were rising from the deck and from the seabed, like a painting he'd seen once, the dead rising at the last day. As they ascended, whatever afflicted them seemed to intensify. Some stopped halfway to the surface, wrestling with invisible demons. Others went limp. Here and there, divers towed their buddies upward, their own distress and terror evident in the huge clouds of bubbles bursting from their regulators. One diver in distress could be equipment failure, a split hose, a faulty valve, or a physical problem, eardrums or vertigo. But this was affecting all of them. Therefore, he suddenly remembered the off taste. It could only be one thing, their air. His lethargy was shot with red pain now. His head felt like it was being split for kindling. He stared up at a tossing blue heaven. Up there was clear air. His whole being yearned for it, wanted it more than it had ever wanted anything. He folded himself at the waist and swam downward toward the figure on the deck. Two yards away, he saw it was one of the women. Her eyes were fixed through the twin windows of her mask. She was blushing. Her hair waved like blonde seaweed where she'd torn her hood off. Through the gathering murk, he saw hand beams glowing in the hold. How many were down there, trying to grope their way out in deepening blindness? His reaching fingers found her suit. He hit the valve on her BC, air hissed, and the vest bulged. The limp body rose from the deck, and together they ascended at a steadily increasing rate. Halfway to the surface, he punched her in the stomach to make sure she wasn't holding her breath. By the time his head broke the waves, he could barely see. A shadow loomed over them. He spat out rubber and croaked, Bernie! Here! Wood knocked as Miss Anna's hull slammed into them. Fingernails scrabbled at his head. He thrust the woman toward them. Her head lolled back. He couldn't tell whether she was breathing or not. Take her. Got trouble below. I've got her. Tell her. What is it? What's going on? Bad air. Listen, there's a half-full tank forward. From last week, get... But then he stopped. By the time she found it, attached a regulator and handed it down, people would drown. What do you want me to do? Never mind. Try to get her breathing. 
try mouth-to-mouth, then CPR. Tell her, no, come back. But the sea closed over his head, cutting off her scream. Several were on their way up. They rose as he struggled to descend. It was like fighting his way back into the grave. He couldn't tell if it was in his head or in his eyes. But he could no longer see the wreck, only a blue-black murk, and here and there writhing shapes. The clatter burst abruptly all around him, the chatter of mad katydids on a summer night, the noisemakers divers carried to signal with. Only now there was no communication, only a staccato scream echoing in the sea. A mouth opened under him. He sank toward it, unable to move his legs, and threw into blackness. A green glow burned deep in the hold. He struggled toward it, slammed his head into something rusty. Coruscating jellyfish drifted across the blank screen of his brain, stinging as they pulsed. His ears beat with a hammering hum like spinning propellers. A band was tightening around his lungs, like a hose clamp of hot metal. Another diver. The jade glow of a chemical light stick showed him curled like a fetus against the underside of the deck. He flinched under Galloway's hands, then suddenly lashed out. The unexpected blow caught him on the cheek, knocking his mouthpiece from between his teeth. His throat locked as it filled with salt sea. His right hand searched in the darkness, hitting jagged steel, rubber, flesh, everything except the smooth chromed curve of a U.S. diver's conshelf second stage regulator. The fist hit him again, colliding awkwardly with his mask. He felt his flesh tear as sharpness plowed his cheek. All right, you son of a bitch, he thought. His fingers grasped something like a small turtle. Instinctively, they closed on it and yanked. Bubbles stormed upward. An instant later, the regulator was clamped between his teeth, upside down, but that hardly mattered. Now for the other. His left hand found his weight belt. He wound his fingers into it blindly. Then he dropped his right, located the double thickness of rubber at the crotch, and squeezed. The other diver stopped struggling. He crimped around the squeezing hand like a stepped-on starfish. Tiller sucked air desperately. The metal bands were turning red hot. Flashes of light burst into dying sparks behind his eyes. He got his legs above his head, braced and pushed off, then looked around, trying to find the way up. He couldn't see a thing, just seething red blindness, like a million cardinal fish schooling in the dark. He backpedaled to what he figured was the center of the hold, he was reaching for his weight belt when someone else's hand pushed his away. He struck out, enraged, but his punch died in water. The hand jerked him around, dragged both divers backward, and let go. A moment later it came back, and air surged into his vest. He felt himself lifting toward the surface. He turtled his head, anticipating the slam of steel, but the ascent continued. He breathed in and out raggedly. The metal bands were white-hot now, so tight he shook with every squeeze of his heart, irregular and rapid, like the dying contractions of an octopus. When his head emerged to the slap of waves and a chorus of cries and moans, he had just enough presence of mind to spit out the mouthpiece before he passed out. His moments of consciousness during the trip back were intermittent. He remembered a short conversation with Hirsch. She'd found the leftover tank, torn mask and fins off one of the women, and plunged over the side without bothering to suit up. She dragged him back from the recesses of the hold and pointed him toward the surface. He whispered through the lightning flashes of returning vision, I'm glad I taught you to dive. You better be. You wouldn't have made it up the way you were going. Later, 
He opened his eyes from where he lay in a slick of vomit and water to look into John Kirsten's face. The club president's cheeks were livid, and not only with the cherry tint of carbon monoxide. This is unforgivable, he said, coughing between each word. Spittle drooled from blue lips. I can't believe this. Incredible negligence. Tiller stared at a light wand that dangled from the other's vest and closed his eyes. It had been Kirsten's balls he'd torqued. How many did we lose? He mumbled. They're all back up and all conscious now, thank God. But supplying us bad air? This club will never dive with you again, Galloway. Nor will anybody else we ever talk to. He closed his eyes on the angry stare. The dark descended again. This time, he welcomed it. You've been listening to an excerpt from Bahamas Blue by David Poyer, narrated by Edison McDaniels. Hatteras Blue and the sequel, Bahamas Blue, the first two installments of the Tiller Galloway Underwater Adventure series, are available today from Audible. For information on how to post a review of the Surgical Fiction Podcast, check the show notes. Your review is much appreciated. This is Edison McDaniels. You've been listening to a special presentation of SurgicalFiction.com. If you've enjoyed this, consider leaving a review and don't hesitate to tell your friends about us and subscribe. Also, remember that I am an audiobook narrator. You can find many of the books I've narrated on Audible, searching under my name, Edison McDaniels. <laughs>